From the Church Pension Group, this is Choose Well. Hi, my name is Krishna Dalakia, and this is Choose Well, the podcast that focuses on well-being, from maintaining physical and psychological health to being financially secure. On today's episode, we'll be talking about investing in economically disadvantaged communities. This conversation is part of Insights and Ideas, a series of dialogues about socially responsible investing hosted by the Church Pension Group. In this episode, we bring you a discussion about the importance of shoring up struggling communities. Mary-Kate Wald, Chief Executive Officer and President of the Church Pension Group, moderates our panel, which brings together two investment managers of the Church Pension Fund, Daryl Carter, founder and CEO of Avanath Capital, and Bobby Turner, principal and CEO of Turner Impact Capital. Hi, everybody. It's so great to have you here today. Today, we're talking about investing in in underprivileged neighborhoods and how we address social inequality. And we all ask ourselves, what can we do? And when we looked at our portfolio and thought about the people with whom we invest, we thought we're able to bring some experts to you. The first is Daryl Carter. Daryl is the founder, chairman, and CEO uh, of Abanath Capital Management. That's a California-based investment firm that acquires, renovates, and operates apartment properties with an emphasis on affordable and workforce communities. Since its formation in 2008, Abanath has uh, acquired about $2.5 billion of properties with over 10,000 apartment units. Daryl himself has 39 years of experience in commercial real estate. We have invested with Daryl for a very long time. And in fact, you can see on our website a very moving video of one of the investments uh, in our portfolio with Daryl, and I hope you'll take a look at that. And then Bobby Turner comes to us from Turner Impact Capital, where he is the principal and chief executive officer. Over the past two decades, Bobby's established himself as a pioneer in the area of social impact investing. Since its founding in 2014, Bobby has rapidly built one of the nation's largest social impact firms with over $3 billion of investments to address some of the country's most pervasive social issues with real estate solutions. So in his years as a social impact innovator, Bobby has dedicated himself to providing sound financial returns for investors while fostering opportunities for communities in the funds. So Daryl, I'd like to start with you. Following the killing of George Floyd, you wrote a very inspiring piece entitled Enough is Enough. And you drew on your own experience as a black man in America, expressing anger, but also optimism. And can you talk to us a little bit about that as just to set the stage for this discussion today? And I always like to point out that, yeah, we've deployed two and a half billion dollars, but our fund, which was in 2009, 2010, the church pension group was one of our first investors. And that's very special. And you always remember investors in fund one. Because without, because they're taking a chance on a company, and we appreciate that you did that. So certainly, I grew up on on the west side of Detroit, and many of the issues of social justice I've experienced directly. One of the things that that I learned that growing up that the reason that my neighborhood deteriorated was because of a lack of investment, and that's always been the premise behind 
the you know companies that I built an investment strategy that in fact if you invest you can have better outcomes including in the social justice uh, area and when the whole George Floyd thing happened of course it was very distressing to many but one of the things that I think these situations like that hopefully brings out the best of all of us to try to focus on solutions but if you invest in many of these communities about 70 percent of our investments are in communities of color, they can have a positive impact on what happens in that neighborhood. And so that we were, I was very angry, but one of the things that I really, I, I kind of did an open letter to the apartment industry to say, hey, we need to invest more in some of these communities of color. Two, we need to focus in our own companies of being more diverse. And that really makes a difference in our business and the apartment business, because in many communities of color, seeing a company that has people that look like them, we think is very aspirational to our residents. And so all those things and trying to heighten the fact that more investment in communities and more diversity and creating opportunities for uh, residents, for instance, we do after-school programs and things like that, which help our residents in terms of, I like to say our philosophy is not to only invest in brick and mortar, but we invest holistically in, our, in the communities and, and the, the people that we serve as residents. So, Daryl, that's one of the things that's really impressed me in, in following your investments is you're not only investing in kind of low-income affordable housing, but your projects bring a lot of services to a community and support for the people who live there. Could you give us a little more detail on that? I think it's just fascinating and inspiring. One of the things, if you look at Section 8 as a housing subsidy for people of lower income, very often we have Section 8 residents that are two-income families. It's just that they both work at Walmart and they live in LA. And the fact is, the school bus pulls up at three o'clock every day and the re- the parents don't get home till seven o'clock at night or so. So those four hours are really very important as to what happens in that community. And we've learned that if we can create activities in a community and we do after school programs at most of our uh, communities where we have lots of kids, And we offer a variety of activities, including drama, art, things like that, homework assistance, but also sports. Probably my salvation growing up on the west side of Detroit was my local basketball court where I lived. And we've put really nice basketball courts in. We've organized leagues and clinics, not only for young men, but also young ladies. These are things that engagement of kids in our community when their parents are working is a very important attribute. And we find that there's a correlation between those activities and the number of police calls that come to that community. That's great. And I have to just say, you're be, you're very humble, Daryl, talking about your basketball, because you did let it slip before this call that you actually played basketball for the University of Michigan. So I just can't yep. let that one go. Bobby, let me turn to you. Your investment thesis, I think, is in finding a mismatch between supply and demand in terms of community infrastructure. So 
talk to us a little bit about that. What are what's the dynamic and that underlies your investment approach? I'll start by saying number one, I I too, Daryl, played basketball. It was just for the Pikesville Junior High School team, where I developed a, a surety and a favoritism towards sitting on the bench, which I spent most of my time. Okay, even before this pandemic, we have to take a look at uh, where we sit as a society and recognize that this country is not lived up to its ideas. We have 43 million um, Americans who are living on food stamps. We have one in three uh, high school students, only one in three that are proficient at grade level. 78% of the full-time workers living paycheck to paycheck. And one in four families, something that Daryl and I are very attuned to, are spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent. Uh, And it's just not sustainable. Someone said to me recently, what's the greatest problem we face in this country? And I think that most people today think it's the disparity of wealth that when 1% of a country or nation controls uh, 90% of its wealth, that undermines the very fabric of society. And I actually disagreed with the individual. I didn't think that disparity of wealth was a problem, was the problem. It is a problem, but I've always believed that poor people don't hate rich, but poor people want to become rich people. What poor people do hate is when rich people create a, a society where they systemically subordinate poor people's opportunities to achieve to have a clear path to upward mobility. And I think that's the biggest challenge we face. So at our, we do is we take a holistic approach to that social safety net of how we're going to provide a clear and fair and almost a level playing field for people to have a path to prosperity. And that comes in the areas of what I call the three-legged stool of hope. We are investors in hope. We focus on education, which is critical to upward mobility. We focus on affordable workforce housing, and we focus on access to preventative and outcome-based preventative health. And the reality is these issues are so pressing that we need more people to recognize the need to allocate resources into these most pressing issues. I think that today, more than ever, we recognize that making money and making change don't need to be exclusive. If you look at assets worldwide, 90% go to very large multinational, and we all know who they are, JP Morgan, Blackstone, BlackRock. And because at the end of the day, that's where this consolidation has happened in financial services. And maybe 10% go to niche firms that have some unique strategies that provide alpha. So one of the things is trying to break that cycle where, you know, people are incented to seek out unique opportunities and diverse managers, which the this way the system is where the big has gotten bigger, there is just, again, there is a focus of not trying to, 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 to say, to, Keep it safe, if you will. And that's the perception. And I'm going to jump, even though I'm not a panelist, I'm going to jump in quickly and say that's where we found opportunity at CPG to become anchor investors in smaller firms where we put in the elbow grease to make sure that we get the appropriate risk-adjusted return, but we're willing to make that leap of faith and then pull other investors in with us. So that what you're saying really resonates. Um, you were my fun there, one there. investor. Exactly. Good, <laughs> good example. And, and it paid off. And so if we could just touch briefly, maybe Bobby first and Daryl to how do you actually make money in affordable housing? Where you're trying to make housing affordable for residents, how do investors like the Church Pension Fund who have to make money to 
pay pensions to the people who are relying on us? How does that work? Let's let's <clears throat> recognize that both impact investing and philanthropy are critical to addressing some of our most daunting challenges, because the reality is not every issue can be treated with a market-driven. We operate 115 schools serving 57,000 kids in underserved, underperforming school districts. We figured out a, a viable, innovative model to make money by scaling best-in-class educators and, and their operations. Notwithstanding, teenage pregnancy is a critical problem that we have in a lot of our schools. I have yet to find out how to make money off of teenage pregnancy. Notwithstanding, it's an essential issue that we have to address, and therefore that's where philanthropy comes. Making money and making change needn't be exclusive, as we said. What I've learned from 30 years investing in urban communities is the biggest expense of owning and operating workforce housing is turnover. Because no one works two jobs a day, comes home to a less than quality apartment building in a less than quality neighborhood and screams, I'm so proud to live here. Therefore, it's a very transient community. The pride and rentership is very low. So our business model is based on the fact that if you can drive a pride and rentership, if you can increase the lease duration, you can increase profitability, not by increasing rents, but rather by driving down expenses, the biggest expense being turnover. So what we do is we drive our tenant satisfaction by enriching our communities rather than improving them. We enrich them by taking a subset of our apartments and subsidizing them for essential service providers, teachers, policemen, and healthcare workers. And those subsidized renters then provide, in turn, they provide essential services in the form of mentoring programs, health fairs, community watch programs. And what we've been able to prove over the last decades is that when you enrich a community, when you create a pride and rentership, you can drive economic returns. And our math is real simple. Over the last five years, we've enriched our communities with over 90,000 program participant hours. That has driven our tenant satisfaction from below 30% today. Our portfolio sits at 95% tenant satisfaction. So we then look and does, is there a corresponding increase in profitability? And the answer is yes. Because we have driven tenant satisfaction, what's happened is our lease duration, the average length of a tenant staying in our property has grown by nearly 35%. When a consumer has pride, they treat the properties better, which dramatically reduces your capital improvement costs and deferred maintenance. And more importantly, when you create a safe environment, we have law enforcement agents that live in our property, incidences fall. In many instant cases, they fall by over 50% in one year, which means we're driving down insurance costs. So by driving down economic loss, we can actually increase net operating income by upwards of 6 or 7% without ever increasing the rents on the very consumer who has seen no wage inflation. I will just add this. The one thing that we have learned is how do you make a property safer is for people to know their neighbors. So if they stay longer, it also becomes safer. So these are metrics that translate to occupancy and the same thing, we have much lower turnover costs. 2% rent growth, we generate great returns. And that is modest enough for most residents to, to, to pay. But it's important to understand, and, and Bobby touched on it, you know, what he and I do, and you could take three or four of the other people who are in our space that do a lot of in the affordable housing, we're just a tiny blip of what is needed out there in the space that we're investing in. The one thing that I never lose sleep over at night is where I'm going to get my next renter because most of our communities have waiting lists. Yeah. Why are we still seeing such a great need? Why don't we see 
more firms like yours, Daryl, and yours, Bobby, rushing in to to fulfill that need? I, I think it's A, a misperception of risk. And secondly, it requires unique skills to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risk. But let's not ignore the elephant in the room and that there's still a deep amount of not only misperception, but prejudice in the institutional allocation of capital. It's just a fact. I remember 25 years ago when Magic Johnson and I went out to raise our first fund and Daryl was right in the trenches with us. Magic always told me there'd be two words that would define this opportunity, arrogance and distrust. Arrogance on behalf of capital, who assumes because we are smart and have capital, we know how to solve the problems of social injustice and distrust from communities who suffer the injustices of social determination, who assume capital is there just to make money. So it's for those forward-thinking investors like the church pension fund and managers like Daryl and others like us who recognize that doing good and doing well, if done correctly, is just smart investing. And it creates a real great opportunity to make great risk-adjusted returns and, by the way, enrich in the future of a stable and sustainable society. Thank you. This has just been great, wonderfully inspiring. Thank you for tuning in to our panel discussion on socially responsible investing. You can learn more and view past conversations at cpg.org slash insights and ideas. Theme music for our podcast is by Fran McKendry. Be sure to visit the e-learning library and learning center on cpg.org for wellness resources. And please join us again for Choose Well. The views and opinions expressed by guests of Choose Well are their own and do not represent the views and opinions of the Church Pension Fund or its affiliates, collectively the Church Pension Group. Neither the Church Pension Fund nor any of its affiliates, collectively, CPG, is responsible for the content, performance, or security of any website referenced herein that is outside the www.cpg.org domain or that is not otherwise associated with a CPG entity. You've been listening to Choose Well from the Church Pension Group.